This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This evening we have two scripture readings. In our first passage, the Lord has told Moses that he has heard the complaints of the Israelites in the wilderness and that he will act with power. So our first passage shows the beginning of God's power. This is a reading from the book of Numbers, chapter 11, beginning in verse 24. So Moses went out and told his people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him, and he took some of the power of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not do so again. However, two men, whose names were Eldad and Medad, had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but they did not go out to the tent. Yet the spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, who had been, with, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. This is the word of the Lord. Now our second passage tonight, the disciples of Jesus have been waiting in Jerusalem for the gift promised from the Father, that is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. A reading from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit had enabled them. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Alamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of the Libya and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Jerusalem, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Dios ha hecho cosas maravillosas. Deus tem feito coisas maravilhosas. God heeft geweldige dingen gedaan. Parmeshwar ne adbhut karya kiya hai. Ishtanak nachangas dogoit. Bhog tvari chudesa. 
ღმერთს აქვს გაკეთებული შესანიშნავი საქმეები. Now the reading continues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked each other, what does this mean? Some of them, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, your promised spirit, the spirit that you have poured out on your waiting church, speak to us today in the language of our hearts that we may hear your word with understanding and answer your call with joy and faith. Amen. Amen. Wow, we could have actually put a lot more people on the stage and had more people on the stage than we had sitting down today, but that was just a small representation of the many languages that God has gathered us together in this church. And isn't it awesome that not only do we get to celebrate Easter, this high feast of the year, but on top of that, we get to celebrate Pentecost. Because there is one and only one gift that could possibly equal the gift of God's Son, and that is the gift of God's Spirit. And brothers and sisters, today we're not just cleansed from our sin and justified and forgiven and adopted, as if that wasn't enough, we have God's very spirit living within our hearts, and all of us have been called and summoned and empowered to serve God in his work of redemption in this creation. Today, we celebrate that the ascended Jesus, who's been lifted to the right hand of God, to the place of all power and authority, has poured out the very power and presence of God on the church. And God today is on us and with us and among us and even inside us. And all of us who are children of God today have been set on our feet to share in God's mission in this world. And no matter how weak you might feel in yourself today, You need to remember that God can and God will use you in his story for his glory out of his awesome power. I want to focus today on the first text from the book of Numbers that Dana read for us. Numbers. Who here would say Numbers is my favorite book of the Bible? My father was a professor of mathematics for 30 years, and even he would not choose this book. Not immediately the most exciting book. It's called Numbers in English because of the two censuses that begin and end this book, these long lists of names and tribes and clans numbering the people of Israel. But in Hebrew, the name of the book is actually In the Wilderness. This is a book of wilderness wanderings, and this fourth of the five books of Moses covers the journey of the children of Israel from Mount Sinai after they've received the Ten Commandments, the law from God, And they set out through the wilderness to the very edge of the promised land, the wilderness. 
that dry, dusty landscape, lots of rocks, a few shrubs, the occasional snake, maybe a vulture overhead, a place that lacks the resources for long-term human subsistence. And maybe some very skilled nomads could slip through there quickly, but to take an army of 600,000 men, let alone women and children, is quite the challenge. The wilderness in the biblical imagery is the featureless transitional zone. You don't go to the wilderness, you go through the wilderness. And it's the place between the land of slavery, Egypt, the place of oppression and whips and death, the place you go through to the place of life and freedom to God's promised land. And curiously, the wilderness, this empty quarter, this abandoned zone, is the place again and again where people meet God. They encounter God in the wilderness, and they also encounter themselves, because the wilderness is the place of testing, where everything superfluous and extra is stripped away, and people and things are revealed for what they really are. And so actually, I think this book of Numbers, this book about the wilderness, has a lot to say to the people of God today by way of analogy, as we too are in this transitional zone from the land of death to the place of life. And it presses upon us some probing questions. Are we people of faith? We are people who have seen God's wonders. Will we respond with thanksgiving and courage and worship and obedience and stride forward boldly to lay hold of God's promise? Or will we be people who hang back in fear, who always suspect God, who view God as the enemy somehow, and in the end are destroyed by their own unbelief? Here in Numbers chapter 11, the Israelites have finally struck camp from the base of Mount Sinai, this awesome mountain where God has disclosed himself in darkness and cloud and thunder and fire and lightning. They finally struck camp to move out toward the Jordan River. And if all goes well, and honestly, there's no reason it shouldn't, this journey through the wilderness should last a couple of weeks. The most conservative estimate accounting for certain delays A couple months at most. Easy peasy. And you know, this wilderness, it's going to be a somewhat irritating and uncomfortable part of the journey. But very soon, they'll be dipping their toes in the cool waters of the Jordan River, looking across at this lush land of milk and honey that God has promised to give them. Home at last. The land that God gave their father Abraham, that is their rightful inheritance, And all they have to do is reach out their hand and take God's gift. And yes, the journey is not going to be the easiest. It's not going to be the most luxurious. But after all, the, the same God who appeared to Israel in thunder and smoke and fire, the same God who opened the Red Sea and led the people through on dry ground, this God is going to be traveling with them. In a pillar of fire by night and a cloud of smoke by day, he will protect them from their enemies on all sides. He will provide them with food from the sky itself. He will slake their thirst with water from the very rocks beneath them. And if the children of Israel can only keep themselves focused on their covenant God and their eyes fixed on the promise almost within fingertip reach, the wilderness should not be a problem. This testing in the wilderness, this revelation of the Israelites' true character, this is going to be little more than a formality. It should have been so easy, but hardly is Mount Sinai in the rearview mirror than the whining starts. 
the peevish complaining, the endless murmuring and grumbling that is going to go on and on and on through this book. These Israelites are the most irritating, thankless, demanding collection of people you can imagine. And they're going to be judged severely by God because their complaining reveals rebellion, ingratitude, and unbelief. And the successive stories in the book of Numbers are going to reveal that it's actually the whole nation that's at fault. Not just a few bad apples we can blame things on, not just those at the very bottom or at the fringes. All the people, the leaders, even Moses himself fall short. And every single adult, every man and woman from this generation, except for two, are going to die in this wilderness and leave their bones bleaching under the sun without reaching the promised land. 40 years of wandering. They started their journey from Egypt as an army, strong, focused, marching forward, and in the end, they're going to be drifting aimlessly through the wilderness. And the tragic thing was, it didn't have to be this way. It didn't have to be this way. And as you read through the book of Numbers, you should be beating your forehead against your Bible, going, ah, these stupid Israelites. You know what? Bad hearts can always find something to complain about. You can offer the most luxurious experience with all the trimmings, and there will always be someone who demands to speak to the manager because there is that little thing wrong. You know, the problem with the Israelites is they're not satisfied in God himself. And if God can't make you happy, believe me, nothing will ever satisfy you. And so the complaining begins. They complain about their troubles, their difficulties, all these lousy things that God has made them endure on the way to freedom. And God is angry, Numbers tells us. And he sends fire to the camp. There's fire burning on the fringes of the camp. If you cast your eye in your Bible to the beginning of the chapter, there's fire burning on the outskirts of the camp. And Moses goes and intercedes to God, and God relents, and the fire dies down. This is an initial warning. Maybe a few tents are singed. No one is destroyed. They should have heeded this warning, but there's this rabble, this group of good-for-nothings who begin to stir up trouble. And honestly, they don't seem like they have to work really hard to get people discontented. They find eager listeners. And of all things, the grievance that the people begin to nurse is about the daily menu. The free buffet that they're being given is not quite up to their standards. Apparently, there are a lot of picky eaters in the minivan. You know, the people have been provided for in the wilderness with manna from heaven. In the morning, they would wake up, and like dew on the ground would be these thin little wafers that kind of looked like coriander and tasted like honey. They were delicious, they were nourishing, they were plentiful, and best of all, they were free. And all they had to do every morning was open the door of their tent, and it was like the heavenly Glovo had arrived, and there was their meal in a little bag right in front of their tent, and all they had to do was go and pick it up and eat it. They didn't have to feed themselves by the sweat of their brow. This was the very opposite of the life of slavery and drudgery in Egypt. God was just giving them everything they needed. But God's provision began to feel monotonous. They wanted novelty. They wanted variety. And they started to wonder why God hadn't provided what our Indian friends describe as the non-veg option. We want some meat. It could be lamb, it could be chicken, steak would be nice. We want to fire up the barbecue, we want to get the smoker going. 
We want that lovely smell of meat, and we just want to sink our teeth into something a little more substantial than these little wafers of manna. And Moses finds out about the complaint, would you believe it, because everyone's crying. There are grown men and women sitting at the door of their tent, and they're actually sobbing. Tears are running down their faces. They are feeling really sorry for themselves. And they're sobbing like little babies because they've convinced themselves that God has been really mean to them because the food falling from heaven isn't quite to their liking and they want more. And they say, you know what? Through their blubbering and through their tears, we remember the, the fish that we ate in Egypt at no cost and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. These are like 600,000 foodies, right? And they're tormenting themselves and each other. They're making each other salivate with stories of delicious feasts that they have consumed in Egypt or at least heard about. And it's surprising, isn't it, how highly selective our memories are. These guys and their parents and their grandparents had been crying out in anguish for 400 years, begging God to do something to rescue them from their misery. They'd been beaten as slaves. They'd been worked to exhaustion. Their babies had been taken away from them and murdered. And now these people are ready to do a U-turn and go back to Egypt, back to prison. God, we need a refund on those miracles you did. We need you to open up the Red Sea again so we can go back to Egypt, the place from which you delivered us. Yes, we've seen wonders. Yes, we've experienced miracles. Yes, you revealed yourself to us. But honestly, there are just some food we got to have. And it's not surprising at all that God becomes exceedingly angry with these people on the brink of destroying them, which honestly would have saved God a lot of trouble throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And Moses, their leader, stands in the gap and intercedes for these troublesome, irritating, ungrateful people. And he reminds God of his promises. God, let me remind you, these aren't my people. These are your people. I'm not the one who made these promises. I'm not the one who swore these oaths. I'm not the one who made covenant with these people. I'm not the one who promised to be faithful to Abraham and his descendants forever. God, this is you. Moses is retorting God's own word back to him. But Moses does have a complaint of his own, one he can utter with a lot more justification than the Israelites. He tells God, God, this burden is too heavy for me. Because they're all coming to me with their complaints endlessly. You should see my email inbox. It's just thousands of unread emails of people whining and complaining. And the burden is too heavy for me. I mean, Moses is 80 years old at this time. He should be retired. And he's leading these people through the wilderness. And God speaks to Moses. And he says, fine, I will provide for these people. I won't destroy them. I will answer their prayer in such a way they'd wish I hadn't. Because God's going to redirect this huge flock of migratory quails from the Gulf, and they're going to go over the, the wilderness and just appear on the ground in the morning, just like the manna. And God says, these quails are going to feed the Israelites not just for one day, two days, three days, a whole month's worth of food. God says, I'm going to give them so much meat, it's going to be coming out of their noses. And if we'd read further on in Numbers, we'd find the people were so greedy and so hungry, they didn't even bother processing the meat properly, and they just wolfed it down raw or half-cooked. And if you've ever had some raw chicken, you know things will end very badly for you if you make that hasty choice. And many people died because of the meat that they were demanding from God. 
Sometimes when God grants a prayer, it's a judgment. If it is a demand we've made of God to fulfill our lusts and our cravings and our desires. But there's something else in God's word. In the midst of judgment, there is this strange grace that God gives. Because God says, okay, Moses, I'm going to solve your problem. I want you to bring the elders of Israel, the people that everyone recognizes as their natural leaders, I want you to bring them to the center of the camp, to the tent of meeting, to the tabernacle, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you, some of this power, and I'm going to put it on them so that you, Moses, don't have to carry the burden alone. And so Moses gathers these 70 guys, and he brings them to the center of the camp. The tribes of Israel are arranged squarely around the tabernacle at the center this sacred tent where God's holy presence is contained. And then, as they're circling this tabernacle, God comes down in the cloud and he speaks to Moses, and he indeed takes some of the spirit that is on Moses and gives it to the 70 elders. Some of the anointing that had empowered Moses to speak so boldly to Pharaoh, to send these plagues, these 10 plagues, these devastating plagues upon Egypt, The power by which Moses had opened the Red Sea and led the people through and defeated the Amalekites and the other enemies, some of this very anointing God is going to take from Moses and place it on these 70 leaders, on the head of these men. And in Moses' record in Numbers, he tells us that as soon as the Spirit rested on them, without delay, they began to prophesy. 70 men prophesying all at once around the camp as no doubt the people of Israel were looking on. Now, what Numbers means by prophecy is not totally clear. Were they foretelling the future? Were they uttering God's own words for the present moment? Was it some kind of ecstatic trance or encounter with the divine? We don't know what it meant that they were prophesying. But it was clearly obvious to everyone that God's own spirit was upon them. But it was only temporary. Because Numbers tells us they did not continue to prophesy. This was a one-time demonstration of their anointing and their authorization from God, but it was not a permanent possession. Seventy men. Well, it should have been 70 if someone was counting. I mean, you saw how difficult it was for Dana to organize everyone on the stage. Can you imagine Moses trying to sort these guys out? There's actually a couple people who are missing. There were only 68 elders at the tabernacle. Two of them, Eldad and Medad, are missing why they could possibly be missing on the most important day of their life, not quite sure. Maybe their alarm didn't go off. Maybe they couldn't find their sandals. They are back in their tent for some reason. And no one misses them in the crowd at the tabernacle until a young man runs up to Moses and breathlessly tells him something very shocking, that Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp, in the camp. In the common area, not the sacred place where God dwells in the tabernacle, in the camp where everyone's tents are, where there are kids running around, where women are cooking over fires, this is where they are prophesying. Not by the holy tent with its fences and signs warning people of the danger of God's terrifying presence in the camp among the ordinary people. And it turns out that God is not limited to sacred places, even sacred places that God himself has defined. And God does indeed define the tabernacle at great length, chapter after chapter in the Pentateuch. 
This is God's sacred place, but the wind blows where it wills. God is not confined to the walls of a tent, a tabernacle, a temple, a church. God moves wherever he wants. And he has his places and he has his means, but he's totally free to work wherever he chooses. You know what? It's also apparent that God is not limited to sacred people either. Even people that he himself has consecrated. Moses is God's chosen leader. And people have met a terrible end by challenging the authority of Moses in these books. And actually, the 68 elders are experiencing the Spirit through the mediation of Moses, right? It's through the virtue of their relationship with Moses and being in his presence that they are given the Spirit. But God wants to show that his Spirit is totally free to work apart even from sacred people and God's own anointed leaders. God is not constricted by the lines of official authority. And then a second person runs up to Moses, and this one is much more elevated. This is Joshua, Moses' aide, his assistant, his right-hand man, and who will be Moses' successor, who leads the people over the Jordan into the promised land. Moses, my Lord, stop them. Joshua is a righteous man. He's not one of the complainers. He's not one of the rabble-rousers. He's not one of the whiners. Along with Caleb, Joshua is the, one of the only two people who will actually see the promised land, the only ones of this generation who seem to have any faith in God. And Joshua does have a righteous concern. This is not coming out of an evil heart. He knows that things should be done properly and in good order, because in the Old Testament, when you don't do things properly and in good order the way God has commanded People end up dying. He knew from experience that the things of God, the holy things of God, should not be handled lightly. And when men choose to offer strange fire before the Lord, the earth has a way of opening up and swallowing them into it. Everyone is concerned. Everyone is alarmed. Everyone is disturbed, except for Moses. And he asks his faithful assistant, Joshua, is it for my sake that you are jealous? Is this about personal loyalty to me? You need to expand your vision much more widely. Everyone is threatened by Eldad and Medad prophesying, except for Moses. He is the one person who rejoices to see the Spirit of God spilling beyond the tabernacle into the camp. Because Moses is a man who knows the burden of leadership. I'm talking about the kind of leader who's there to serve people and to serve God not just to build up his or her own ego. Those who actually know what it is to care for people and be responsible for people before God are very glad to share that heavy burden. And that is just a general truth of life, actually. I meet regularly online with a pastor in Canada, Joe, and he was telling me that, you know, in his town, people have been very upset with the school board over the last couple years through the pandemic, People are angry because kids have to wear masks or don't have to wear masks because the schools are being opened or closed. Everyone is angry and everyone is complaining to the school board members. And Joe did something that no one else seemed to have done. He sent an email to one of the school board members, someone he honestly disagreed with himself about some of the decisions, but he said, hey, I just wanted to say I appreciate the way you've been doing your best to serve the people of our city. And I know it's not easy making these decisions, and it's a thankless job, but I want you to know that, you know, I see this and appreciate it, and, you know, good for you. And this person responded back 
like in almost pathetic relief that there was one person who actually had some gratefulness for the hard task that he was shouldering. Because he was getting nothing but complaints and angry people shouting at meetings, and no one appreciated this burden of leadership. And in fact, here in the city, they're having a huge problem because no one wants to stand for re-election or election to the school board. Why on earth would anyone volunteer for this job where all people do is rip into you? No matter what you do, people will be angry. No, thank you. For Moses, this division of leadership, the sharing of responsibility, the spreading of God's spirit cannot happen soon enough for him. And I think there's a warning here for those of us who are in leadership, who are in ministry. The danger of hoarding ministry for ourselves because we're actually validated by our ministry. Not by the fact that we're sons and daughters of God. That status isn't enough for us. We need to be in charge, on the stage, in control, doing things. And we feel resentful and jealous when more gifted people arrive. And we're annoyed that the Spirit of God is resting on someone else. We're so easily jealous of our privileges, threatened by the gifts of others angry that God has anointed other people, worried that we don't have value if we're pushed aside for others. We need the heart of Moses in the church, don't we? Where all of us are freely, gladly rejoicing and praying and interceding, thinking the more people filled with the Spirit, the better. We cannot be too filled with the Spirit. We cannot have too many anointed people in this church. God, fill us. Send your tongues of fire on all of us. Would that all of God's people were prophets. I feel like Moses is expressing a deep wish, but I almost hear the sigh in his words. Only all of God's people were prophets. You know, the trouble with the children of Israel is that they left Egypt, but Egypt never left them. They still had that spirit of bondage and slavery, and they longed to go back to what was familiar and comfortable and predictable. And amazingly, experiencing miracles and seeing the glory of God was not enough to change them. There was a deep problem of the heart. If you turn on the faucet in your bathroom and brown, dirty, stinking water comes out, you're not going to fix that problem by turning off the faucet and ignoring it. There is something wrong deep down there somehow. And maybe pipes have got to be digged up. Maybe it goes all the way back to the reservoir. And the same thing is true of the human problem of sin. It goes down way underground and way far back, and it's all coming out of hearts that are evil and complaining and rebellious, that don't believe God, that are secretly convinced that God is mean and that God is our enemy and he doesn't want what's best for us, and he's only let us out into the wilderness to destroy us. You know, in Jewish tradition, between the Old and New Testaments, Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, was celebrated as the feast of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, what had happened right before this chapter. The Israelites had actually been present at the giving of the law, the original Pentecost, as it were. The law had been given right to them, and it didn't change them. They drove out of the parking lot straight into a ditch. And the whole Old Testament is them just ramming their vehicle into the ditch again and again and again and again. And the only solution is what God promises in Ezekiel chapter 36. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, a live beating heart. Even better than that, I will 
put my spirit within you, not just on you, not just resting on you, as happened to Moses and the prophets and other men and women of God in the Old Testament. I'm going to put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So that the time of testing in the wilderness is not going to be failure after failure after failure after failure and judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment, but that we will actually make it through to the promised land that God wants us to enjoy. We don't celebrate Pentecost as the giving of the law anymore. On its own, that's only a matter for grief and depression. We celebrate Pentecost as the giving of God's Spirit who will enable us to do what we cannot do on our own. And in Acts chapter 2, we read, we heard about God pouring out His Spirit on His waiting, praying disciples. The fire descended not to consume the camp, but to anoint the people who now through Christ's death and resurrection are able to bear the presence of God without being destroyed. The Spirit comes to affirm and to empower God's people. And in line with that wonderful prophecy from the book of Joel, all will prophesy. All the sons and daughters will prophesy. Not just Moses, not just 70 elders, but all the people in the entire camp, all 12 tribes. Even better, not just tiny Israel, even 600,000 people is like a drop in the bucket. The Spirit is going to overflow even the camp, and all nations will encounter God and experience His presence and His power. Because the Spirit of Pentecost is promised to all, all of you and your children and all who are far off, Peter says, everyone whom the Lord our God shall call, even down to the present day, and everyone from all these nations sitting in this room. And the Spirit comes, among many other things, to anoint our lips so that we too might prophesy and speak for God. And of course, there is a gift of prophecy where people are given supernatural revelations and they're able to speak God's intimate, direct, focused word right into your life. If you've ever experienced that and received that, you know what a huge blessing that is. And would to God we were experiencing more of that and all the other range of gifts of Pentecost in this church. We need to pray for more of all those things. But as Paul says, not all prophesy in that way, just as not all speak in tongues. But through the Spirit, every child of God is empowered and authorized to speak for God, to declare the praises of him who brought us out of darkness into marvelous light, the highest thing we can do with our tongues, to utter praise to God, to exhort one another, to be faithful, and not to have an evil, unbelieving heart, to inherit the promises by faith. The Spirit anoints our lips to share the message of Jesus. Does anyone feel weak? Anyone feel feeble? Anyone feel overwhelmed by that calling from God? That would just be a crushing new law if it wasn't for the gift of the Spirit that somehow, miraculously, through our often confused, hesitant, stumbling words, that the word of life somehow comes through that and people are born from above by the word of the gospel. We were gifted to prophesy, even I dare say, in foretelling the future, because God has told us what the end of the story is going to be. We are people who've already been given the last chapter of the book. There are a lot of chapters between now and then that we have not been given. We don't know how it's all going to work out, but we do know that in the end, the lamb wins. 
We do know that in the end, all evil will be defeated. We do know that in the end, this entire creation is going to be renewed. We do know that in the end, that all tribes and tongues and nations will stream into the new Jerusalem to offer worship to Jesus. And every single person in this room is called to all those forms of prophetic ministry. It's not just the person on stage talking. All of us are called by by Jesus to speak for him, to speak the truth in love, so that Moses' devout wish becomes reality in the church of Jesus. I want to point something else out in this chapter in Numbers. You notice that the elders were not given the spirit directly from God. They were given some of the spirit of Moses, the spirit that rested upon their leader. The same pattern is true in the New Covenant. Because we receive the very spirit that rested upon Jesus, the anointed Messiah. Look at Acts 2, verse 33. Here's Peter explaining. Here's what's happening at Pentecost. Acts 2, 33. He's talking about Jesus. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The spirit is given through Jesus. He shares his own anointing with us. The same spirit by which Jesus healed the sick and gave sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, raising the lame from their beds, calling Lazarus forth from his tomb, declaring the message of the kingdom of God and offering the word of God's own forgiveness. This very anointing of Jesus is given to us, which is why we are called Christians, little Christs, little anointed ones, each of us bearing the flame that comes from Christ's own fire. Brothers and sisters, if it is not already obvious to you, we are nothing without the Holy Spirit. We are nothing without the Holy Spirit. And before we ridicule the people of Israel, we all share the same peevish, unbelieving, ungrateful, unbelieving, demanding heart that they did. And on our own, all of us would die in the wilderness. None of us would make it through the transitional zone to receive God's promise. We've been given the Spirit of God, not just resting on us for a brief time, like the 70 elders, but he has taken up his dwelling place within our hearts forever. And we do need these words of warning from the book of Numbers. As Paul says, these things were written for our instruction. We have all the same temptations. We have the same natural hearts, but we do have a better hope. We have the Spirit of God, the down payment who guarantees the full possession of what is to come. If you're a child of God, he has already given his Spirit to you. Of course, we pray for further anointings and more fillings. We want as much of the Holy Spirit as God is willing to lavish upon us, and he is willing to give us far more than even the greatest faith here would ask for. Every believer already has received the Holy Spirit and is guaranteed by the grace of God and the power and presence of that spirit to make it through the wilderness into God's promised land. And in the meantime, every single person here is empowered by God, is authorized by God, is anointed by God for the work of ministry. I hope you don't think of yourself as a consumer who's coming here and paying the professionals to do the ministry. I'm not even here to do ministry. My job is to equip you guys to do the ministry. You're on the front lines. Those who are pastors and leaders and teachers are there to serve you and help you to serve Jesus more effectively. I'm not going to do your job for you. I would not want to take that privilege away from you. We are weak. We are small. 
But amazingly, God wants to use us. Jesus wants us to share in the joy of the kingdom. And he's given us more than enough power. He's given us the infinite, unlimited presence of God within us. So shall we pray and ask God to fill us afresh with joy, with courage, with faith, with his own spirit? Heavenly Father, we come before you, and you know our hearts, God. You have tested us, and so often we have been found so wanting. Forgive us, we pray, of our own peevish unbelief, our own complaints, our own demands, our secret feeling that you don't really want our good. Forgive us, O Lord, for Christ's sake. And fill us all with your spirit afresh. We can do nothing apart from the spirit of our master, O Lord. We pray that the power of the Pentecostal spirit would anoint each person here. And may this be a church where every member is healed and activated and empowered for ministry. Lord, there are such great things you want to do in this city and in this world. We offer ourselves to you and say, Lord, use us, we pray. Use us, we pray. We want to be living sacrifices for your glory. May the fire of your spirit descend and consume us for your praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.